two ugly folks find love in the countryside of northern England. Our dowdy damsel, however, soon finds her lackluster love is a liar. Will the hideousness he's hiding destroy their lives and her reputation? Or will our mush-faced maiden find the inner courage to walk away with her dignity intact? The Hot Mess Heroine, Jane Eyre. The book, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's Let's get get lit! to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Alexis, how are you this uh, crack of dawn? Well, you know, um, rising is slow, so expect Ooh, many no. errors. <laughs> no, no, it'll Mary be fine. word fumbles, yes, to now, expect them. Now, we had a break, a well-deserved yeah. break. How did you I use agree. it? Do you feel refreshed? What's up? Uh, no, I, I didn't. I don't feel refreshed. One might think I should, but no, I don't. Anyway, uh, but I did do fun things. What you break. do? I had a cheese tasting, which mm-hmm. I talked about before, and I finally had that event, and that was a lot of fun. How about you? What kind of exciting stuff did you do over our break? And- well, as you know, um. As a member of the Black American community, I wasn't for the vaccine. So I got it, girl, and half my face fell off, almost. (laughs) (laughs) But that was on your first shot, right? Because you didn't get to Johnson & Johnson, did you? Oh, no. I don't put American products in my body. (laughs) Actually, is it all American? No, I got Moderna. And um, I'll say within an hour. So I walked to the hospital, got the Moderna shot. It was so quick and easy from scheduling it to walking in to getting it. I walked to Starbucks. Then I walked home. So I'll say in 30, 35. Oh, no, because you have to sit there for like yeah, 30 was, minutes. OK, I was going to say. Yeah. So like in an hour's time from the shot, I just felt a tingle on the left side of my body, which is the shot, the side that I got the shot in. And um, then my tongue. Um, kind of was swelling up. Oh. But, but I've choked before, as you know, and I thought, this ain't good. This ain't that. <laughs> I'll be all I right. I know that experience. <laughs> but then I, I couldn't feel my tongue or the left side of my face. And so I was looking up Moderna and half my face went numb. You know, that was my Google search. And some mm-hmm. people said they experienced Bell's palsy. Do you know Bell's palsy? Yes, I do. Yes, I okay, do. Temporary paralysis. Temporary paralysis. So you have symptoms similar to those of a stroke victim. So I thought I was getting Bell's palsy because some people did experience Bell's palsy with Moderna. Or, or they said on this public forum um, that they experienced Bell, Bell's palsy or symptoms of it. So it looked like it was starting. And then for a couple people, their doctor said, well, then don't take the second shot. I'm going to take the second shot because I'm a trooper. And maybe half my face will fall Ooh. off. Bell's palsy ain't permanent, oh. you know. Um, right. Moderna came out with an official statement, said, nah, not us. 
we don't give you Bell's palsy and stop putting that on us. And that made me think, oh, y'all definitely give people Bell's palsy. <laughs> so, All right. And then two days later, I got really achy eyes and a really achy. Um, all my muscles were really achy and sore. Achy eyes? Achy eyes. But that is a thing. A lot of people usually experience it on the second shot. That's actually like a symptom of cr- coronavirus. So anyway, um, I had to l- go home from work, which... Is also exciting because I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch all the movies I can. I'm sick. I can't work. Then I got home and crashed for a day and a half. Wow. Yeah. So um, that was that. And then I'll say, so I got the shot on a Wednesday. I'll say by Sunday, this is my first shot. By Sunday, I was at 90%. 95 on Monday and then Tuesday and so forth through the week. Fine. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So, so I just thought I'll share that with y'all since no one shared it with me. I'm, I'm the only person I know that experienced symptoms with the first shot. Really? Mm-hmm. Do you know a lot of people that took the shot though? Yeah, I do. Really? Mm-hmm. I got friends of all backgrounds. I don't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. Well, and they was what is getting- that? They was getting a shot and I was like, I'm good. But then I was like, mm, I want to travel. So, so I got it. And I'm going to get the second one. I'll keep y'all posted or maybe I won't. <laughs> wow. Maybe it'll be someone else sitting here reading books with Alexis. <laughs> we don't know. So Listen, I'm just gonna I'm gonna say this because this is what I heard people that have reactions on the first shot previously had mm-hmm. coronavirus. That's it. If you have reactions to the second shot, you never had coronavirus. That's in the air. I think I had COVID in um, December or, or f- I forget it was December through February. February. It was in yeah. February. February okay. was part of it because mm-hmm. we was out in public and you was coughing on me. It was so gross. And I fought with that for two weeks. It wasn't just the coughing. It was the dizziness. It was having to sleep sitting up um, real quick. Breathing, right? Right, breathing, breathing, um, mm-hmm. dizziness, and then um, blowing my nose, and there was blood in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, oh, when I got the Moderna shot, I did have to go back to the ER because it was starting to be like a problem. And she said, "Oh, not ER, back to the hospital where I got the shot. It was a full hospital." She said, "I would like you to go to ER right now." And I said, "Girl, I got things to do." But I tell you, if I feel like I'm gonna die, I'll go. And she said, "Yeah, that's probably fine." <laughs> so, so no one knows what to do. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it was fine. Okay, well, it's, it's, all right. You look good. You, you too, look good. Okay, I look that's alive. what matters. Mm-hmm. Yes, all lively and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's move on to our theme of the week. Each week, readers, we choose a theme to discuss, inspired by the book we're reading. And this week, the theme is: Do ugly people have better relationships? <laughs> Now, I chose this. Why? Why? Please explain. Please, please explain. I chose this loaded theme because Charlotte and her sisters were nothing to bring home uh, to mama in the face. Also, this book is very aggressively pro ugly. It wants you to know that these two people are not attractive. Sometimes they'll ask each other, the main characters, um, you know, do you think I'm attractive? And one will be like, no, you know, you're ugly. And then the other one will be like, I love you for your honesty. You're ugly too. 
And then they like continue the conversation. And this sort of exchange happens a few times. Am I right? It does. So it's a thing where in some books, even now, it's like the they want you to know the protagonist is ugly. I'm not saying unattractive. I'm saying ugly. <laughs> they want you to know that. And that's supposed to help you, um, I believe, not feel threatened by this character and all the good things that are going to happen to them. You feel like they deserve it more because they're ugly. <laughs> this is a weird thing that writers do sometimes. So do ugly people have better relationships? Well, fortunately, there's not a shortage of studies on the subject. Are you, are you Scientific kidding? studies. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Our boo-boos winning at love. One study we're going to bring up. So there, I read about five. There are two that really stood out to me. One is in Psychology Today, and you can find that article. I'll list my sources in the show notes, but that article is titled, Do Beautiful People Have Better Relationships? And I'm just going to read a section from it. It says, sometimes it seems that good looking people get all the breaks. And according to research, some of that is true. Like they seem to be healthier. Perhaps doctors pay more attention to people that are beautiful. Um, they have better jobs. They even seem more likable. Now, if you have some extraordinarily beautiful people in your life, are they usually likable? I'm going to just leave that out there. Narcissistic and fun, maybe. But do you like them? Anyway, um, so the question Wait, was... Wait, but <laughs> is, it, is it just extraordinarily beautiful? Supermodel levels, yeah. Actually, I got a few supermodel friends and they're great. Not the guys, though. They're trash individuals. The question was <laughs> the focus of a new study led by Christine McKellams of Harvard University. So, you know, it's legit. Um, right. Specifically, she and her uh, colleagues were interested in whether physical attractiveness plays a role in relationship satisfaction and longevity. So those two measures of a relationship being successful, longevity and satisfaction of the partners within the relationship. So what did the research find? First of all, the men with more attractive faces were married for shorter durations, full stop, period. <laughs> <laughs> so they're more likely to divorce if they're beautiful. And it seems that they really the focused men. on the men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, celebrities who were rated as more physically attractive were married for shorter periods of time also. And physical attractiveness significantly predicted the probability of divorce. Now, celebrities are told all the time that they're beautiful. And we'll get to that and how that also is part of this result that scientists have found. <laughs> scientists, wow. they're really doing the work. That's why we can't get a proper uh, vaccination. <laughs> They busy finding out if ugly people winning among the participants who were um, in exclusive romantic relationships. The more good looking the wor they were, the less they. Um, oh, I want to explain something to y'all. And it's called what is it called? Derogated attractive opposite sex alternatives. Derogation of attractive um, relationship alternatives. This is what it means. It refers to this phenomenon where if we're attached to someone romantically, even attractive people to us are not attractive. They don't make a bleep on the radar. And I understand this. So, well, is that, is, please. Yeah. So this is the thing. It is really hard for me to find um, uh, another man attractive. 
And I don't mean like, oh, he's good looking in the way that art is good looking. Art, you know, I can go to the museum and appreciate art. That, I don't want to take art home and put it on the wall. <laughs> that explains why you don't think Idris is fine. Idris is so. fine. You know what? Idris is a Idris to me is a good looking uncle. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's more of an age thing. Sure. Uh, but I also don't think Michael B. Jordan is cute. But and he's that was not. my other person. But that was my other person. <laughs> you guys. So, you guys. Stop. Would you stop with the Tell extra? Steve Harvey, that, I don't want him. That, anyway. Um, <laughs> that, that explains it, Shout out it, to you, Lori, though, girl. It. I see what you're doing, and I love it. Back to, um, and that's called derogation of um, attractive alternatives. So this is a phenomenon, again, where people in committed relationships satisfied in their relationships find it hard to find other people attractive. And it ain't just me that's weird. I've heard other people say this. So among individuals who were made to feel attractive, and this is the key, made to feel attractive, they were less likely to take on this phenomenon. They still finding people cute in the streets. You get it. I don't get that. If you were made... If, if they were so if your husband made you feel attractive no 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 not the person you're in the committed relationship with but the world oh <laughs> if the you world. T- like you alexis you're gorgeous so oh. <laughs> for you. you it's gonna be very hard for you when you find yourself somebody or someone finds you or whatever <laughs> It's going to be hard for you to just have eyes for them. Ooh, I'm telling your business. Because the world um, finds me attractive. Exactly. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so it's hard for their eyes not to wander. That's just a long way of saying it's hard for them to keep their eyes on their own plate. All right. Now, real quick, another study I found, it's called The Case of Dating Someone Less Attractive Than You. And this is more of an essay. <laughs> instead of a a scientific Harvard study. Um, And this is found in Thrillist.com. So akin to a a beauty contest scorecard, a person's attractiveness is ranked from one to 10 usually. And we all heard that. Like, is he a 10? Who, Michael B. Jordan? No, girl. So there you go. (laughs) Also, um, generally, it's assumed that the beautiful Amazons among us, the eights, nines, and tens like Alexis, should only date (laughs) each other. Rarely people buck this trend. Have you ever known like a um, five to date a 10? Yeah. So just, <laughs> Don't say people's names. Yeah. So <laughs> my daughter and I always, we used to look at couples. Now this is what we were living when we was like in the home together. We would be like, there's always a reacher <laughs> in every relationship because very seldom do you find people <laughs> that are like on the same level of attractiveness. That's hard to find. I don't, I think there's less of it. Plus there's also the song by the Mary, um, an ugly woman and make her your wife. So, okay. all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So sometimes these Quasimodos get together with these Idris Elbas, and it works. Here are it reasons does. why you, listener, and you, Alexis, should consider dating someone ugly, according to Thrillist.com. Okay, you'll be happier. Period. Number one, they'll work harder to impress you. Now, I have been. At the beginning of a romantic um, relationship with someone that was gorgeous. To me, he looked like, um, this is so like dated, but he looked like Superman. Um, Which one? 
so this is when Tom Welling was cute. So it's hard to like, because mm, there hasn't been. Oh, no. What am I talking about? Henry, Henry Cavill is gorgeous. Oh, look, yeah. I found someone attractive. So, uh. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, I just thought he was so beautiful. Dumb as a box of rocks. And we'll also get on this. Like for women, <sighs> the way we look at your physical and I'm generalizing um, has a lot to do with the respect we have for what's inside of it. <laughs> and when you say really stupid things over and over again, you ain't going to be cute for long. Mm-mm. 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 We get tired of that because, you know, women be reading and being successful and doing it for <laughs> ourselves. So anyway, um, so, yeah, ugly people tend to be more reliable, kind, hardworking in relationships. They're better emotional support, yada, yada. Number two, inner beauty. Oh, inner beauty is great because it never fades. And that sounds so cheesy, but people just get more beautiful depending on who they are and the influences they allowed in their lives. Fine. Um, but inner beauty can just grow more and more beautiful with each passing year. And it's just it's a completely satisfying thing when people focus on who they are inside. They just get more beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then la- lastly, they're more likely to stay committed. <laughs> According to Thrillist.com, I will have to say that life experience has shown me otherwise, but that's what Thrillist.com has to say. What do you think about these two st- studies the essay and the study and do you think there's any uh, merit there that ugly people are better in relationships so honestly i i think um the i since beauty is in the eye of the beholder right it really doesn't matter what um the external forces say because once these two people that find each other really attractive it doesn't matter that i say oh he's really ugly it just doesn't matter it doesn't matter. So, yeah, there are who I perceive as ugly people. And I don't typically typically call people ugly, but people that are perceived as ugly that get married is more ugly people married than quote unquote attractive people. Because the attractive people can't stay committed. Now, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you a flat question. It's not loaded. Do you really know any ugly people? That's what I'm saying. I, I don't go around calling people but ugly. But in your heart, in your mind, have you ever looked at someone and thought, oh, they ugly? Not knowing anything about them. They just ugly. Not knowing it before they open their mouth? Yes. Um, I like to call people ugly. <laughs> Even in your heart, you don't think that. Don't worry about what, what's PC or what's correct. You don't call people ugly even in the private privateness <laughs> privacy of your mind in my mind i i try to avoid that at all costs i now i might i might and i might have a conversation internally and say they're um less attractive or i'm not attracted to that person but i, I don't like to call people ugly because beauty is in the eye of the beholder so none of the studies i said got to the point that i think you just got to so quickly i'm not sure ugliness exists i don't know any ugly people I've I've never I can't think of anybody that's just ugly. Now, I like to throw Danny DeVito's name around. That's a very low hanging <laughs> fruit. But Danny DeVito been married forever and I don't know him. And sometimes he wears like a Kango and he says intelligent stuff and I can see it. It's fine. Um, but I don't think ugly exists. I don't think there are ugly people. I think someone cannot be attractive to you. 
I think there are qualities, physical or internal, that appeal to you. And someone might not have those qualities, so they're not attractive to you. Full stop. That that don't make them ugly. (laughs) It don't make them ugly. Ugly has to be a, a characteristic that is universally accepted. This person would be on the ugly scale somehow. And I don't know anybody like that. Well, the world does have an ugly scale, right? Isn't that the science of saying how far Symmetry? your eyes apart? Hey, yeah, that's that racist. Thing. Also, how wide your nose is. That's stupid. All of that is dumb. I will say some people are strikingly beautiful, like art. Like sometimes I look at Lupita mm-hmm. Nyong'o's skin and her um, like great, doll right? features. Uh-huh. And, and she does look kind of like unreal to me. <laughs> Uh-huh. I can agree with but that. But I can't think of anyone that has that same effect on me the opposite way where I'm like, oh, all your features together, you're really ugly. I've looked at people like Joaquin Phoenix and thought, why aren't you more attractive? <laughs> so, something about the math or Michael V. Jordan. It all works. <laughs> it's all symmetric, but something about you. But all that means is you don't have what I consider attractive. And exactly. you ain't got to, because who am I? And that's how we should feel about everybody. Exactly. 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 Yeah. That's your one opinion. And does your one opinion matter about? No, Mm-mm. no. No, I don't think ugly people exist. And I think when you tell someone over and over again that they're beautiful, they don't work on these other qualities like intelligence or communication <laughs> skills or emotional intelligence. They, emotional they ain't got to work on it because they're beautiful and they can pass. And for men, that might last a little longer. It seems like for women, we don't get that grace for too long. So, um, yeah, that can be a disadvantage. You know, everyone telling you you're beautiful and then you end up shallow and weird. Maybe. I don't know. Um, so yeah, ugly don't exist. I think you can just be unattractive and mm-hmm. no one is too ugly for love. No one, no but, one. But you may be too beautiful. <laughs> or you, <laughs> you may think you're too beautiful. And I think Somebody that's really the you. problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somebody told you that. Too many people probably told you mm-hmm. repeatedly. So basically beauty is reg- relative. And, you yeah. know, I have ugly friends, all guys um, who are ugly. But they're unattractive inside. Um, and women love them. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so uh-huh. whatever. Exactly. Whatever. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know what this discussion was about or where we landed, but uh, ugly don't exist. And with that well, note, uh-huh. we learned that beauty is in the eye of the beholder and don't fall for anybody's um, putting ugly on you because, you know, it doesn't matter. You, you don't have to. Don't believe what they say because it doesn't matter. Literally, it doesn't matter. Yeah, from grade school on up through to, to the grave. Mm-hmm. Anybody call you ugly? That says more about them than it does about you because ugly doesn't exist. Absolutely, doesn't. I agree. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Okay, my beautiful friend, you ready to move on? <laughs> Alexis, can you give us some context on our book today, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, and maybe a little bit about Charlotte's inspiration for this book? I know she's ugly. (laughs) Okay, let me talk about Charlotte Bronte. She was born in April 1816. She's the third of six children. She had four sisters and 
one brother. Her mother died in 1820 and she was reared by her father with the help of her mother's sister, um, Elizabeth Branwell. Her father sent four of his daughters off to clergy daughter school in 1824. And Charlotte said the school's poor conditions permanently affected her health and hastened the death of her older sister who died of tuberculosis in June of 1825. The school is used as the basis for Lowood School in Jane Eyre. I think we talked about this with Wuthering Heights. Yeah. In that episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Kids was dying because there was like a graveyard across the street from the school and the right. drainage wasn't. Ooh, it was just nasty. Mm-hmm. It wasn't good. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlotte married Arthur Bell Nichols after initially refusing his request, his proposal in 1854. And soon after the marriage, she was pregnant. Um, but she got sick and died along with her baby in March of 1855. And while her death certificate says she died of tuberculosis, biographers say she died of dehydration and malnourishment um, due to vomiting caused by morning, uh, severe morning sickness. Yeah, tuberculosis was like a catch-all for diseases they didn't want to or couldn't explain. Right. Um, Jane Eyre was originally published in 1847 under the pseudonym Courier Bell. And it was published as Jane Eyre and Autobiography. It was published in three volumes. Advertising. I didn't know that. (laughs) Why? You can't just say it's an autobiography and it's not. Not only is your name not Jane Eyre, but this is a fictional story. She's a liar. That's unattractive. That's why they said she ugly. It was her story to tell. Anyway, the, it was published initially in three volumes, uh, one to 15, chapters one to 15, and then 16 to 27, and then 28 to 38. The American edition was published the following year. The novel was revolutionized as um, first prose fiction uh, by the um the first to focus on the protagonist's moral and spiritual development through its intimate first-person narrative, where actions and events are colored by psychological intensity. Charlotte Bronte has been called the first historian of private consciousness. This book, Jane Eyre, along with uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, is one of the most famous romance novels. Kari, did you have anything you wanted to share? Um, no, I think you really touched on every point I had in mind. And we did go over some of this in our Wuthering Heights episode. And. We well, were- we would talk about the let, but let's not. Oh, were those? Okay. <laughs> there was no other Bronte book we read? Uh, no. No, I think these are the only, I think. Okay. I think these are the only two. All right, cool. Well, do you have a brief synopsis, no spoiler synopsis for us, for Jane Eyre? I do. Jane Eyre is orphaned and must endure mistreatment at the hands of family. After being locked in a room and fainting, she hopes to find relief by being sent to school. At school, she finds herself with a cruel headmaster who preaches probation. There, she survives a typhus epidemic to become a teacher. When her favorite person at the school leaves, she must find a new situation where she becomes the governess in a wealthy home to a young Parisian girl. Kari, who do you think would enjoy reading this book? Um, if you're sick of, if you enjoy romances and you're sick of romances where the woman sacrifice, sacrifices everything for love, I think you will like this book. Our protagonist is a fully formed character. 
um, with a principled mind, you know, her principles uh, with or without her love interest. She has these ideas of what's right and wrong for her. Um, Some will find this kind of intelligent female character refreshing, especially for 19th century literature. She seems very independent and feminist gets thrown around a lot. Um, And it's true. This is like a feminist novel in the sense that the females are just as developed as the males. There's some equality there Uh, and the attention paid to the characters. And this character is not um, like all about boys. (laughs) And that's all she can think about. She has her uh, own uh, ideas about life and her purpose. So, yeah, if you're into that, I think you'll love this book. And Alexis, um, what were your first thoughts of Jane Eyre? Did you know anything about this book before we read it this week? Uh, yes, I had watched, um, I think, many of the movies okay. um, back in the day. You watched uh, the one with Orson Welles? And yeah. You did? Mm-hmm. Okay, is that good? It's been so long. Okay. This, I just knew the story. Mm-hmm. Because I'd watched those uh, movies uh, that time ago, but I didn't, um, I don't remember the movies and I didn't remember um, the story. Mm-hmm. I didn't. So it was interesting. Cool. But yeah, I was thinking about the movie. And of course, I thought how long the book is, but I said, I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> and you did. Well, without further ado, let's start part one of Jane Eyre, a deep dive with spoilers. So if you haven't read the book and you don't want spoilers, turn off the video. Yeah. And if you're ready to proceed, knowing full well what you're getting into, let's begin. Okay. (laughs) Part one, gay fat. On a cold winter day in November, 10-year-old Jane is hidden behind a curtain in the window seat reading a book as she's excluded from the presence of her aunt and three cousins until she acquires a more sociable and childlike disposition, a more attractive and sprightly manner. As Jane minds her own business, her cousin John Reed comes into the room and yells, she's not in here. Tell mama she has run out into the rain, bad animal. Jane was content to ignore John until her cousin, Eliza, peeks in the room and says, Jane is in the window seat. Jane immediately reveals herself from behind the curtain because she didn't want John to drag her out. Now John is 14. And she asks, what do you people want? John tells her, what do you want, Master Reed? That's what you should be saying, lady. John was a bully and bullied Jane constantly. He told Jane to come and stand before him, and Jane did. And she eventually, he eventually struck Jane. And his reason was because she was talking back to the mom. Okay. (laughs) And for sneaking behind the curtain. And for um, that look she had in her eyes like two minutes ago, he just didn't like it. John then bullied Jane Moore, telling her she ought not to use books on the bookshelves because those are all his and she had no right to touch them. He then throws a book and hits Jane in the head. <laughs> Jane She's like bleeding a little bit too. <laughs> yeah. She, like this must have been a really heavy day. book. Um, Jane said, you wicked and cruel boy. You are like a murderer. You are a slave driver. You like the Roman emperors. Like he's like the Roman emperors. So John is shocked by Jane's response and prepares to go tell his mom on her. But she decides to charge at, he just, wait, I think he charges at Jane. And so they have a little tussle. 
the aunt, Mrs. Reed, comes in the room and then along with two servants, Bessie and Miss Abbott, and they arrive and kind of part the children and blame Jane for the ruckus. Jane is sent into this red room as a punishment by Mrs. Reed. Miss Abbott and Bessie tell Jane it's the shameful behavior, it's shameful behavior to strike her benefactor's son, her young master. Jane is offended my master. How is he my master? My servant. And they tell Jane she's less than a servant because she don't have nothing, she don't do nothing for her keep. Jane is like, I'm so over these people. Jane doesn't want to go into this red room and begs not to be sent there anywhere else but there. She promises she'll like be better. When they get Jane into the room, like she's like kicking and screaming not to go in this room. And when they finally get Jane in this room, um, they tell her that she needs to learn how to be um, pleasant and useful, okay? Pleasant and useful. Ultimately be a better child before God punishes her. So Miss Abbott tells her if she doesn't repent, something bad's gonna come down the chimney, fetch her away. Well, why they tell Jane that? Because Jane is in this room like, oh, wait, my uncle did die in here. And so it's this big stately room and it's never used. It's mm-hmm. got red carpet. The bed has a red cover. The walls are pink. Mm-hmm. It's dark mahogany. And again, this is where her uncle died. And as Jane sits in her punishment, she starts to think how poorly her cousin John is being allowed to, is allowed to treat her. And then her co- cousin Georgiana and Eliza treat her with indifference and Mrs. Reed uh, has an aversion to her and how the even the servants treat her partially. In fact, the servants have low conversations like, well, she we could feel sorry for her, but, you know, she is she's ugly and she don't like deserve to be felt sorry for. Yeah, if she she's was ugly. Prob- yeah, if she was better looking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so if Mr. Reed was alive, Jane thinks um, he he would have treated her kindly. She thinks Mr. Reed would come back from the dead and harass these people for their mistreatment. And so thinking about her dead uncle and the, um, the things the servant said, Jane works herself up into a frenzy and begins screaming to be released from this room. Miss Abbott and Bessie come to the room and check on her. And um, so they like having a little conversation. Now, you know, you got to be in this room a little longer. You just be quiet, okay? Just be quiet. And Miss Reed then comes and she's like, Jane is doing this just so she could be released from the room. Get out of here and leave her in there. And Jane is like, please don't, please don't leave me in this room, please. They leave her and they ignore her. And Mrs. Reed tells them to ignore her. So Jane then works herself up into a frenzy. No, she's 10. 10, Uh uh-huh. Yeah. So they're neglecting her. They're locking her up in the attic, essentially. Yeah. And then um, Jane feels like she sees a ghost. And she then passes out. She hasn't seen a ghost. She's like worked this up in her imagination. She's under a lot of stress. Yeah, she is. Um, So when Jane awakes, she's in bed and being cared for by the apothecary, who is Mr. Lloyd. Bessie is treating Jane kindly. So she um, asks Bessie, what's the matter with me? And Bessie tells her she fell sick in a red room with crying. Um, and you'll be better soon. But Bessie tells the nurse that she doesn't want to be in a room with Jane by herself because Jane might die. And Bessie cares for Jane over the next few days and is kind to her. She even sings to her. Now, Bessie is the servant, remember. Um, so 
Yeah. And a day or so later, Mr. Lloyd returns and asks Jane, what's going on? Why, you know, what happened? Why are you feeling like this? Are you not happy? And Bessie makes excuses and said, you know, she's crying because she wanted to go in the coach with her cousins. And, you know, she had a fall. Jane is like, that is not true. Those are all lies. I didn't fall and I wouldn't go with my cousins if you paid me. So Bessie is summoned by um, somebody. She got to do some housework, right? Mr. Lloyd takes this opportunity to speak to Jane privately. And Jane tells them how the Reed family has mistreated her over the years. He asks, you can't want to leave such a splendid home. And Jane is like, if I had anywhere else to go, I would love to leave here. I hate it here. Mm -hmm. She tells them the only other relation she has um, that she's aware of, according to Mrs. Reed, is poor and low. No low connections. People don't want to be with low connections. Mr. Lloyd asked if Jane would like to go with them. And Jane reflected and she was like, hmm, poverty is synonymous with degradation. I don't like that. So they abused me here. They locked me in the attic, but they're not poor. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Lloyd well, asked. I'll stay. <laughs> Unless what there's some they- wealthy alternative. What if they treated you well? The poor people. And Jada's like, they you know, still poor though. I don't think poor people can treat you well. Right. It's just, they got it's too many stresses from the poverty. Yes. But John Reed knocked me down and my aunt shut me up in the red room. Mr. Lloyd a second time produced his snuff box. Don't you think Gates had Hall a very beautiful house? asked he. Are you not very thankful to have such a fine place to live at? It is not my house, sir, and Abbott says I have less right to be here than a servant. You can't be silly enough to wish to leave such a splendid place. If I had anywhere else to go, I should be glad to leave it, but I can never get away from Gateshead till I am a woman. Perhaps you may. Who knows? Have you any relations besides Mrs. Reed? I think not, sir. None belonging to your father, I don't know. I asked Aunt Reed once and she said possibly I might have some poor low relations called heir, but she knew nothing about them. If you had such, would you like to go to them? I reflected. Poverty looks grim to grown people, still more to children. They have not much idea of industrious, working, respectable poverty. They think of the word only as connected with ragged clothes, scanty food, fireless gates, Rude manners and debasing vices. Poverty for me was synonymous with degradation. No, I should not like to belong to poor people, was my reply. Not even if they were kind to you, I shook my head. I could not see how poor people had the means of being kind. And then to learn to speak like them, to adopt their manners, to be uneducated, to grow up like one of the poor women I saw sometimes nursing their children or washing their clothes at the cottage doors of the village of Gateshead. No, I was not heroic enough to purchase liberty at the price of caste. He then asked Jane if she would like to go to school. Now she thought about that for a minute and she didn't know much about school, but she knew that her cousin John was a cut up in school. So he wasn't nobody to um, help make a decision. And then her 
girl cousins, they was cut up in school as well. So she's like, you know what? Forget them. This might be the place for me. So Mr. Lloyd then speaks to Mrs. Reed and Jane hears nothing about school for the next couple months and continues to be banished by the other family members. But deep down inside, she knows that school is coming. School is coming. Sometime later, and Mr. Brocklehurst comes to the home and we find that Jane is indeed going off to school. Now, Mr. Brocklehurst comes to the house and he runs the school and he quizzes Jane regarding her fitness to attend. Are you a good child? Uh, where do the wicked go? And must what must you do to avoid wickedness? And do you read your Bible? He even scolded her for not enjoying the book of Psalms. After Mr. Brokerhurst's inquisition, he said he would receive Jane at Lowood as charity school for orphans where um, families pay about 15 pounds a year and the rest is paid by um, benefactors. She could be trained in conformity to her position and her prospects. Also, Mrs. Note told Mr. Brokerhurst that Jane has a tendency to be deceitful. Now, Jane, she said this in Jane's presence. So Mr. Brocklehorse said he'll be sure to tell everybody. And he gave Jane a book, like a child's guidebook, like how to be a good child kind of book. And it was an account of an awfully sudden death of a young person named Martha G, who was a naughty child addicted to falsehood and deceit. So this is a, a warning. Is this a Jane. Victorian? This is like a Victorian period, right? I don't know. What is Victorian? Yeah. Um, here, I'll look it up while you're talking. Okay. Um, when Mr. Brocklehurst leaves, Jane goes into Mrs. Reed and she goes off. She is not here for it. She says, I am not deceitful. If I were, I should say I loved you. But I declare I do not love you. In fact, I dislike you worse of anybody in the world except John Reed and this book about the liar. Give it to your daughter, Georgiana, because she's the one that tells lies. Well, Mrs. Reed said, what more do you have to say? <laughs> and Jane went, continued. And she told her, I'm glad I ain't no relation to you. I will never call you out again as long as I live. I will never come to see you when I'm grown. And I and anyone who asks me, I'm going to tell them how you mistreated me. And I will say that the very thought of you makes me sick and you treated me with miserable cruelty. So, yeah, this is a Victorian era uh, novel that is very focused on religious piety and like, uh -huh. you know, um, like sanitation of oneself. Oh, yeah. This book definitely fits that. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So me, Mrs. Reed is like, how dare you, Jane Eyre? Why was Jane. Mrs. Reed shocked? She knows she abusing that child. It she was just shocking for the way. child to also know it and to clearly state, <laughs> hey, you abusing me and I'm never going to forget. Right, right. And Jane said, I dare because it's the truth. I can't live without kindness and love and you got no pity. Jane said, you are deceitful, lady. Mm. Well, after Jane went in on Mrs. Reed, she felt a sense of freedom and triumph. And guess what? Miss Reed said she told Jane she was under a mistake. You know, you you mistaken about me. I'm really kind to you. 
And she said, what's the matter with you? And then to tell her, Miss Jane, excuse me, Mrs. Reed said, I want to be your friend. <laughs> the Jane told Mrs. Reed off. She felt good. And she felt remorse. And yeah, she wasn't. stood up for herself, which is great. But she also is like, but maybe I shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Because she looks so hurt. And maybe yeah. I did come down a little hard on her. And it's not normal for children to speak to those like that. So Bessie, the servant, made Jane's final days with the Reed family warm. And a few days later, Jane was swept off to school. Part two, Lowood. When Jane arrived at school, she quickly realized the students nor the school were well cared for. The bright spot of the school was the superintendent of Lowood, Miss Temple. She ran the school under the direction of Mr. Brocklehurst. She did the best she could for the students despite restrictions by Mr. Brocklehurst. One time the porridge was burned and not edible. Now this is like Jane's first day or second day. Mm-hmm. And instead of making the children go hungry, she planned for bread and cheese to be given to the children a little later. Because, like, it was so not edible. She was later criticized by Mr. Brockerhurst and told children should be taught probation instead of being given food. <laughs> Just go hungry, kids. Learn how to <laughs> suffer. Jane was put with the rest of the children and immediately took to a young girl named Helen, who was 14. Helen is intelligent, um, but Jane sees that she seems she's like picked on by one teacher. And once when Jane was alone with Helen, she asked her, why do you take being picked on by that lady with such grace? And um, listen, I can't remember what her response was. Helen she is said, like, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, you say it. So Helen is a perfect child. And that perfection seems to annoy a few staff members who mm-hmm. one in particular uh, will pick her and like physically abuse her too. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And Jane is like, how can you put up with this? And basically, Helen's like, you know, my reward is heavenly and all I can do is what I should do. And what everyone else chooses to do is on them. Mm-hmm. So that's Helen. And Jane yeah. like, mm-hmm, yeah, sure. You crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you better stand up for yourself right now here on Earth, girl. Mm-hmm. She said, that's too much. So eventually, um, Mr. Brocklehurst arrived at the school. He hadn't been at the school since Jane was there. So I think it's been like a, a month or so. Jane's been, you know, at the school. She's in peace. While it's not in the best condition, she has been, you know, doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he comes to the school and he's talking to the student and, and Jane kind of drops something. So he zooms in on her. It's like, oh, you're the young girl that I had. Yeah, you. You're the one your aunt said you was a liar and you must be watched. So he goes into this long tirade of how wicked Jane is. In front Jane, of everybody. Of course, in front of everybody. Jane, of course, is broken. And then I think he has her stand on a chair and like, just stand there and be wicked because mm-hmm. nobody should talk to you because you're wicked. Mm-hmm. Like, literally. She's 10 still. <laughs> Mrs. Temple says, you know what, Jane, I'm going to look into it. You, you know, you get to tell us how to how you are by the way you function in the community that you're in. But I am going to look into what Mr. Brocklehurst said. So Mrs. Temple reaches out to uh, Mr. Lloyd, the apothecary, and, um, and kind of clears up the act. 
accusation and makes an announcement to the school and says, Jane is cleared of Mr. Brocklehurst charges. Okay? She is not a deceitful child. Can I just say this part of the book? I'm like, what is this I'm reading? And why is she at school for so long? Is this about a girl in a boring school living a boring life? She in school for a very long time. Okay. Oh, wow. What? She was just like there. Half she the just book. got there. Okay. Half the book still ain't nothing happened. Okay. No. So Jane has not seen Helen for some, well, back up a little bit. After some time, a typhus uh, epidemic breaks out at the school and children are dying left and right. So the teachers are kind of focused on the dying students or the sickly students. So, you know, Jane gets to be free and about and not have to worry about that stuff. But Jane's friend, Helen, she hasn't seen for some time, but Jane learns that she's sick but not with typhus, with tuberculosis. She sneaks away to see um, Helen, and Helen is glad to see Jane. Jane got in bed with Helen, and they talked until Jane fell asleep, and Helen died that night. The typhus epidemic resulted in many deaths that brought much attention to the school. The unhealthy nature of the school was revealed, the quality and quantity of the children's food and water, the accommodations, uh, Mr. Brocklehurst wasn't initially held accountable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he he was eventually removed from his post and more sympathizing people were put in the school and the school um, improved. Jane stayed six years as a student and then two years as a teacher until Miss Temple leaves the school to be a wife. Now, Mrs. Temple, Miss Temple and Jane have become great companions. So her leaving the school was like Miss Temple leaving home and the school um, and Jane no longer felt the same. So she was like, it's time to leave where I need to find a new situation. So Jane places an ad in the paper for a job um, as a governess. And she receives a letter back from a Miss Fairfax, Mrs. Fairfax of Thornfield requesting references, references for her to govern a 10 year old girl. Jane was excited. She could be a governess to a, um, a young girl of a widow. That's easy peasy. Even though Jane was 10, excuse me, 18, she needed to have the consent of Mrs. Reed um, since she was her natural guardian. And the response from Mrs. Reed was, do what she please. I don't care what that girl does. Mm -hmm. All her references were approved and Jane is off to her new situation. But before she leaves the school, she gets a visit from Bessie. You remember Bessie, right? Mm She is the servant from the Reed home. Bessie said she had heard that Jane was leaving to get a new situation and she went to see her before they moved away. So um, Bessie had gotten married and had two children and um, a girl and a boy and she named the girl Jane. And so Bessie came to kind of spill the tea about what was going on back home. Georgiana, though cute, that's her cousin Georgiana, who also yeah, there's three kids, two girls and a boy, and she's letting them know what happened to these kids who are now adults, also. Yes, and Georgiana um, was cute, though she picked up a little weight. She tried to run away and marry somebody that the family disapproved of, but Eliza found out and told and brought that situation to an end. And Georgiana and Eliza have been quarreling ever since. John is a disappointment to his mother. He's squandering the family money. Um, he just like a he just in the streets, y'all mm-hmm. in the street. Bessie also mentioned that seven years ago, um, Jane's kinfolk on her father's side came looking to see Jane. Mrs. Reed said Jane was fifty miles off, but 
um, he had to make a, he had to meet a ship in the next day or two. So he couldn't go the 50 miles that way to go see Jay. And he's wealthy. She tells him that too, like some wealthy uncle or something. Yeah. Like Can he's a, a Madeira wine merchant. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So her and Jay spoke about an hour, but Jay didn't really, it doesn't sound like Jay ain't got any more details about that. So what do you think? What was, what do you think was significant about Jane's time at Lowood? Oh, nothing was significant yet in this book. So this orphan girl <laughs> who the family didn't want to take in, but she family and they feel like they have to. Likely story, they treat her like Cinderella, except she ain't got a queen. They throw yeah. her up in the attic and it's the worst thing ever to be locked in this room mm-hmm. um, where someone she loved died once it's just a cruel thing to do to lock this baby up in this room and she like i will never forgive you for this i'll also never forget it um and so the mom who took her in is like how dare you recognize that we abuse you i'm shocked i'm sending you off to school kind of as a punishment and so she goes to school they don't feed her they don't feed her properly jane asked to be sent to school oh right 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 and then the suggestion is brought up about why not send her to school because that's what Jane really wants anyway. And the mom, and the aunt is like, fine, yeah, go, bye. And so she gets to the school. The kids aren't fed properly. It's drafty. Uh, they only get to bathe the uh, twice a year. And all of a sudden the kids die and people are shocked. Uh, her best <laughs> friend, who's very principled, also dies, but of a different disease. Um, mm-hmm. And then Jane is like, I've been here too long. I'm going to go get a job. And she do. Yeah. Fantastic okay. literature. <laughs> I said, I knew the Brontes was going to be terrible. I hate these <laughs> girls so much. They write like ugly people. <laughs> Part so, three, yeah. Thornfield. When Jane arrives at the station near Thornfield, no one is there to meet her and she has to wait. Eventually, an older gentleman arrives and takes her to Thornfield. He's late, like, you know, you you supposed to be somewhere for a job and then somebody just shows yeah. up like two hours late. And Uber don't maybe. exist because it's the Victorian era. Go figure. Yeah. So she's met by Mrs. Fairfax and Jane felt like, oh, Miss Fairfax is treating me like a visitor. That's not what I expected. I'm a governess. You know, I expected a more cold and stiff reception, but she is like really nice. She asked Mrs. Fairfax if she would meet the Miss Fairfax that evening. Miss Fairfax was like, oh, you mean Miss Varens, Adele? Oh, yeah, no, Miss Fairfax tells her Adele is her future pupil, and she is not Mrs. Fairfax's daughter, as Mrs. Fairfax has no children. The next morning, Jane learns that the home that they're in is owned by Mr. Rochester, who is often away. And Jane's like, I should have asked more questions. Hmm. It was common knowledge that Mr. Rochester owned the home, but Jane wasn't from the area, so she wouldn't have known that. Jane, and she didn't ask all the questions. So um, Jane told Mrs. Fairfax that she actually thought Mrs. Fairfax was the owner. Mrs. Fairfax explained to Jane that Mr. Rochester was Adele's um, guardian. Guardian, yes. And that Adele was born in France, speaks French more than English, and has a nurse that only speaks French. So that's going to be who, who who she takes care of, who she governs. The baby. After, mm-hmm. Yeah. After Jane um, meets Adele, Mrs. Fairfax takes Jane on the tour of the home. 
And as the tour goes on, Mrs. Fairfax takes Jane to the roof of the house, right? And so Jane can kind of survey the land. She's like, it's, you know, it's nice, but it ain't special. <laughs> After this, they head back down this dark, narrow staircase, and Miss Fairfax stops to lock the trap door, and Jane continues on. And as Jane is going down this hallway that separates the front and back rooms of the third story, she hears this weird laugh, this curious laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's like, well, Jane knew this house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jane knew the servants didn't sleep there because on the tour, she asked. And she's like, no, the servants didn't sleep there. So who will be laughing? Mm-hmm. So kind of scared. And you, Jane be frightened easy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of scared. So she has, Mrs. Fairfax, are you coming? And Mrs. Fairfax is coming down the stairs. And she says, um, that laugh belongs to Grace Poole. She helps with the housemaid sewing and whatnot. Yeah, she's in the room down there. And Mrs. Fairfax tells uh, Grace, listen, Grace, you're being loud. Could you stop with the loudness? You know what the deal is. <laughs> now, Jane like, thought... That's just Grace. Mm-hmm. Jane thought Grace Poole was uh, not real, right? So when Grace Poole comes out of the room and says, she is real. Okay, that's a real person. Because that laugh was really curious. Mm-hmm. Jane is like, ooh, I guess I was being a little extra. She is a real person. Mm-hmm. Okay, listen, this is um, part 3A. We're going to meet Mr. Rochester. Bye. Three months go by, and one day, Jane is walking to Malapost, I think. Um, she sees this scary figure coming her way. Like Jane is like really creeped out. This is a time when... Um, this is a really religious time. What'd you say? It's Victorian area? Is yeah. that what it's called? Mm-hmm. And so she sees this thing coming her way and she immediately thinks it's a, uh, I think she said a spirit or yeah, something. everything's a spirit, spirit to Jane. <laughs> yes, there are no spirit spirits in, in this book. <laughs> yes, none. And so Jane works herself up to thinking it's a spirit. And then... Um, it's just a man on a horse. It's just a, a man on a horse. I think um, Bessie told Jane too many scary stories when she was a young. And so as she gets closer, she realizes a man and a horse and his dog. And as they pass by, the horse slips on the ice and the horse and the man fall to the ground. Jane is like being kind and she offers to assist. And the man was like, stay out of the way. Shoot, I need to do this myself. It was probably you but, that spooked my horse. <laughs> but he can't get up. Also, come and help then, me because I'm trapped under this horse. Yeah, he can't really get up because he, he like twisted his, um, sprang his ankle. So um, he can't really get up by himself, but come over here and help me, Jane. Young lady, anyway, um, what you know about Thornfield? Because Jane offered to go get him some help from the Thornfield Hall. And he was like, what you know about that? Whose house is that? And Jane said, it belongs to Mr. Rochester. I don't know Mr. Rochester, and I never met him, but I know it belongs to him, and I never seen him before. So he tells Jane to go on and finish what you're doing and hurry back. Mm-hmm. But he gets on the horse and rides away. So they separate. She Jane helps returns. him get on the horse. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane returns to Thornfield and learns the man on the horse is Mr. Rochester. He also tells her he's someone else. Okay. He lies. He, he didn't tell her that. He, he lies. who he was. He's a liar and he's rude. No. Signs, warning signs. He never said who he was. He never okay, said. And she did. didn't ask. Mm-hmm. The next and evening. And in her mind, she's thinking, he's ugly. Mr. <laughs> Rochester calls for Jane and Adele to join her for tea. Mrs. Fairfax is like, you need to dress for the evening. Jane is like, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mrs. Fairfax tells her, when Mr. Rochester is here, I always get dressed. 
for the evening. So she finds something in her stuff. Jane don't have much, you know. She she just got a box of maybe one dress. So they put that on and they go down. So she talks to Mr. Rochester. He's a bit gruff, but um, Jane um, likes the engagement. She learns he learns that Jane went to Lowood. She's eighteen, hasn't been in society, doesn't have family she knows, and can play a little piano like most English girls and draw. And draw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's a she's a very good uh, artist, actually. Yeah. Jane had asked Miss, Mrs. Fairfax early on if there were any peculiarities about Mr. Rochester. And Mrs. Fairfax was like, no. But Jane is like, in fact, he is peculiar. I mean, this man is very changeful and abrupt. Yeah, and she's he like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Listen, I just work here, Jane. I don't really be paying attention to him like that. I guess he's That's rude what she and weird. Said. Yeah. That's what she said. But she's like, you know what? Miss Fairfax ain't a good, um, not able to talk about character. So yeah. I, don't, mm, I don't know about her. Anyway, so Mrs. Fairfax then tells Jane, I mean, he has no family, okay? Um, he did have some, but his elder brother died a few years ago and left him all in possession of everything. Um, and that's it. So his father's dead, his brother's dead, and there's some stuff between them. I'm not sure what it is, but, you know, there was some squabble between the brothers and family. So, and he has this you know, little girl why. to care for, and it's a lot mm-hmm. of stress. Although so he ain't why. never home, and the staff mm-hmm. cares for the child. Yeah. So they engage uh, several more times, and he eventually tells Jane about how he came to be um, Adele's guardian. He had a relationship with Adele's mother, who was a French opera dancer. Um, Adele's mother was two-timing him, okay? He found out and broke it off. She tells him she was pregnant, and he's the father. He don't believe her. But then the mother dies, and Adele knew Mr. Rochester, so she offered to, so he offered to take Adele with him. And Adele said yes, because the person she was staying with after her mother died, she didn't really know them. They were poor. <laughs> oh, that's why I tell them when the stage she went used to that poor life. Also, that's true. Mm-hmm. At one point, Mr. Rochester asked Jane if she thinks him handsome. Jane was like, "No, sir. <laughs> no, sir, I don't." And she quickly realizes that, oh God, that wasn't the right thing to say. You're supposed to be real polite about that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, you ain't supposed to tell ugly people they ugly. And he's like, "Oh, you're honest." Yeah, well, you ugly that. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we just two uglies sitting right here. Mm-hmm. He said, you're not more pretty either. So that's all right. After Rochester tells Jane about Adele's mother, Jane um, begins to feel Mr. Rochester is not so ugly after all, although she hasn't forgotten his faults. Her, his faults are very clear to her. Him, him, her. His faults are clear to Jane. She looks forward to seeing him and chatting with him. You know, because this is a big house. And even before Mr. Rochester arrived, she was kind of bored with the house. You know, no, like, lively discussion. So when Mr. Rochester came, she was like, engagement. Oh, I love it. He's a little peculiar, but I like talking to him. Then there's that one time where Jane heard some noise at night, and she was thinking about, um, when she was thinking about Mr. Rochester, she was like, he is peculiar, you know, thinking out loud. And then a noise came from the third story chamber, which is above <laughs> her room, all the weirdness. And she believes the noise is Grace Poole. So she's a little frightened, but she gets up to find um, 
Mrs. Fairfax. And when she gets up to look for Mrs. Fairfax, she sees there's smoke coming out of Mr. Rochester's room. His bed curtains are on fire and he's still sleeping. So she shakes him and yells for him to get up. But the smoke kind of stupefied him. So she tosses water on him to wake him up. He He wakes up. You idiot. (laughs) She's like, like, you're also on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord Jesus, it's a fire. (laughs) (laughs) Was that Grace Poole? And is she possessed with the devil, thought I? Impossible now to remain longer by myself. I must go to Mrs. Fairfax. I hurried on my frock and a shawl. I withdrew the bolt and opened the door with a trembling hand. There was a candle burning just outside and on the matting in the gallery. I was surprised at this circumstance, but still more was I amazed to perceive the air quite dim as it filled with smoke. And while looking to the right hand and left to find whence these blue wreaths issued, I became further aware of a strong smell of burning. Something creaked. It was a door jar, and that door was Mr. Rochester's, and the smoke rushed in a cloud from thence. I thought no more of Mrs. Fairfax. I thought no more of Grace Poole or the lad. In an instant, I was within the chamber. Tongues of flame darted round the bed. The curtains were on fire. In the midst of a blaze and vapor, Mr. Rochester lay stretched motionless in deep sleep. Wake! Wake! I cried. I shook him. But he only murmured and turned. The smoke had stupefied him. Not a moment could be lost. The very sheets were kindling. I rushed to his basin in an era. Fortunately, one was wide and the other deep, and both were filled with water. I heaved them up, deluged the bed and its occupant, went back to my own room, brought my own water jug, baptized the couch afresh, and by God's grace succeeded in extinguishing the flames which were devouring it. The hiss of the quenched element, the breakage of a pitcher which I flung from my hand when I had emptied it, and above all, the splash of the shower bath I had liberally bestowed, roused Mr. Rochester at last. Though it was now dark, I knew he was awake, because I heard him fulminating strange anathemas at finding himself lying in a pool of water. Is there flood? He cried. No, sir, I answered. But there has been a fire. Get up, do. You are quenched now. I will fetch you a candle. In the name of all the elves in Christendom, is that Jane Eyre? He demanded. What have you done with me, witch? Sorceress? Who is in the room beside you? Have you plotted to drown me? I will fetch you a candle, sir. And in heaven's name, get up. Somebody has plotted something. You cannot too soon find out and who and what it is. There. I am up. Now at your peril, you fetch a candle yet? Wait two minutes until I get into some dry garments, if any dry there be. Yes, here is my dressing gown. Now run. I did run. I brought the candle which still remained in the gallery. He took it from my hand, held it up, and surveyed the bed, all blackened and scorched, the sheets drenched, the carpet round swimming in water. What is it? And who did it? He asked. I briefly related to him what had transpired, the strange laugh I had heard in the gallery, the step ascending to the third story, the smoke, the smell of fire which had conducted me to his room, in what state I had found matters there, and how I had deluged him with all the water I could lay hands on. He listened very gravely. His face, as I went on, expressed more concern than astonishment. He did not immediately speak when I had concluded. Shall I call Mrs. Fairfax? I asked. Mrs. Fairfax? No. What the deuce would you call Hofer? 
What can she do? Let her sleep unmolested. Then I will fetch Leah and wake John and his wife. Not at all. Just be still. You have a shawl on. If you are not warm enough, you may take my cloak yonder, wrap it about you, and sit down in the armchair there. I will put it on. Now, place your feet on a stool to keep them out of the wet. I am going to leave you a few minutes. I shall take the candle. Remain where you are till I return. Be as still as a mouse. I must pay a visit to the second story. Don't move, remember, or call anyone. He went. I watched the light withdraw. He passed up the gallery very softly and closed the staircase door with as little noise as possible, shut it after him, and the last ray vanished. I was left in total darkness. I listened for some noise, but heard nothing. A very long time elapsed. I grew weary. It was cold in spite of the cloak, and then I did not see the use of staying, as I was not to rouse the house. I was on the point of risking Mr. Rochester's displeasure by disobeying his orders, when the light once more gleamed dimly on the gallery wall, and I heard his unshod feet tread the matting. I hope it is he, thought I, and not something worse. He re-entered pale and very gloomy. I have found it all out, said he, setting his candle down on the washstand. It is as I thought. How, sir? He made no reply, but stood with his arms folded looking on the ground. At the end of a few minutes he inquired in rather a peculiar tone. I forget, or rather you say you saw anything when you opened your chamber door? No, sir, only the candlestick on the ground. But you heard an odd laugh. You've heard that laugh before, I should think, or something like it? Yes, sir. There is a woman who sews here, called Grace Poole. She laughs in that way. She is a singular person. Yes, so. Just so. Grace Poole, you have guessed it. The next morning, Grace Poole acts like nothing happened, and James finds this suspect. And the servants are saying Mr. Rochester left a candle on his bed and Mr. Rochester leaves the house and then is gone for like several days. Yeah, she'd walk, Jane walks into a room as the servants are talking about the fire that almost happened. And then they'll see her and be like, um, uh, so what y'all doing today? You know, they change the subject. <laughs> change real the quick. Subject, yeah. And she's mm-hmm. like, I think they keeping something from me. Yeah. So part three B, Mr. Rochester's guest. When Mr. Rochester eventually turns after about 10 days, he returns with guests. They include young women that he could potentially marry. Um, Some sisters, a mother, a brother, you know, just a family of people. And Jane is like, ugh, people. Yeah, they're shallow, wealthy, social Mm -hmm. climbing type of people. But Jane finds herself a a bit jealous because she sees Mr. Rochester interacting specifically with one of the girls and he, she think, okay, they court and whatnot. <laughs> so, um, Jane reminds herself, you know what? Get your head out of the clouds. This is, this, this, this is, is my master. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ooh. This is my master. Yikes. Uh, I, there's nothing to it, okay? Just because we had some good conversations don't mean nothing. Mr. Rochester could never fall for me no matter what he says or does. So she identifies this, the girl that she thinks Mr. Rochester is going to uh, marry. And like I said, she finds herself jealous because this young woman is beautiful as well as talented. And when Mr. Rochester invites Jane and Adele to be present every evening with these guests, 
Okay, Jane is now pitted up against this beautiful woman, and there she is sitting there all plain, not ugly, plain. And kind of skinny, and the other woman is like thick and shiny. <laughs> Why is it going to be thick and shiny? I think that's what they say, girl. I don't know. Okay. So Jane tries to just be in the room, like quiet and kind of mind her business. Um, but Mr. Rochester forces her to engage. Meanwhile, the girl and her mother are like rude and nasty. Um, looking down at Jane as a governess, and they talk about how they mistreated their governess, and they don't particularly care for Adele. A little one morning, yeah, one morning, Mr. Rochester leaves for the day, and late that afternoon, a gypsy appears. He comes, one in the, the gypsy comes to the house and says, I'm not leaving until I tell all the young women's fortune. So they tried to shoot the uh, lady away, but she's persistent and insists she won't leave without telling every young woman present their fortune. So one of the young women goes to have their fortune told. So each one, excuse me, one by one, they go to have their fortune told. Yeah, now they plans. go in this room. They don't let the uh, stranger into the house. Mm-hmm. And she in the room telling everybody's fortune. Like, mind you, the homeowner is gone, but they let this person in who insists that they should. And okay, so Blanche. Now, Blanche is the woman that uh, Mr. Rochester seems to be courting. So she goes first and she gets bad news and she runs from the room kind of with an attitude. And then a couple of other girls go in there and they come out giggly. And then the gypsy is like, hey, there's one more person in there. I'm sure of it. There's got to be one more person. Bring that one person to me. So... As the ladies are getting their fortune told and before this last young lady goes in, which is Jane, a man from the West Indies comes. His name is Mason and he's asking to see Mr. Rochester. And he says, look, we're all friends. I know him. Um, I'll wait. I'm going to sit right here until he returns. Mm -hmm. So after the ladies have their fortunes told, um, the last woman, who is Jane, comes in. Right. So during the engagement, with the gypsy, Jane begins to think that this gypsy is Grace Poole because she says something suspect about him. Mm-hmm. But it and turns the, out, gypsy, guess what it is? The quote-unquote gypsy, because I don't even think that's a cool word to say. But anyway, the quote-unquote gypsy is getting things right about everybody's life. And they shot, yeah. they like, oh, she legit. She knew this yeah. and this about me. And she said, I'm ugly and dumb. And she know my mama. <laughs> yeah, like everything about me. So who is the gypsy, Harry? It's Mr. Uh, what's his name? Rochester. Womp womp. That's correct. Jay it's tells- Mr. Rochester in drag and no one knew. Nobody. <laughs> yeah, they nobody had a full knew. conversation with this man. This is the owner of the house dressed up as a fortune teller to trick him. Yeah, that's right. To trick him. He's a little off. Mr. Rochester, what is she sitting there? Because she looks like, what? This is dumb. Anyway, Jane tells Mr. Rochester, hey, there's a Mr. Mason out here. He wants to see you. Mr. Rochester's move quickly changes and tells Jane to send Mr. Mason in immediately. Mm -hmm. That evening while Jane is in bed, she hears an awful scream and struggle. She's like, what's that? She is always hearing noise, right? And um, it's coming from the third story which is above her head. And then she hears, help, help, help. And Rochester, Rochester forgot me, come. Everyone has heard the cries and they come out of their room. So everybody wants to go 
you know, know what's going on. They check Mr. Rochester's room and he's not there. And then he suddenly appears and said, oh, one of the servants had a nightmare, y'all. Go back to bed. I'm going to take care of that servant. Poor servant. I'm going to look after him. <laughs> he then goes to Jane's room and says, come here, Jane, quickly. Come, come help me. He takes Jane to the third story. And there's a body. <laughs> there's a body. And she can hear Grace Poole laughing. And she sees... <laughs> what a great laugh. She sees um, a man looking lifeless, Mr. Mason. And um, his face is bleeding. His arm is soaked in blood. And Mr. Rochester says, Jane, look, you're not in danger. But stay in this dark room with this man who's bleeding and, and I don't know dead. Yeah. <laughs> dying. But stay here. Don't talk to him. Neither one of y'all talk to each other. And I'm going to go away and fetch a doctor. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, oh, okay. Is this part of my duties as governess? <laughs> and the thing is, why do you think at this point, maybe we'll talk about it. But why okay. does he want them to talk to each other? Is he... Yeah, let's talk about it in a minute. Okay. Uh, so, of course, Jane's imagination is running away with her. As we know, her imagination is quite active. Why doesn't Rochester want her to speak to Mr. Mason? Who did this? Grace Poole? How can he allow this woman to stay in their house? She's obviously dangerous to everybody. Well, it turns out Mr. Mason is fine. He's taken away by a surgeon. Um... And then there's another story. Rochester doesn't want to discuss with Jane. But she is. A, oh, actually, I should have said it's another story that between Mr. Rochester and Jane. So she's like officially his confidant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is now a secret. This event is a secret that Jane and Mr. Rochester share. Yeah. So for another some one. reason, he brought her into his confidence and. Yeah, things are unfolding before her and he's like, don't tell anybody. But it's probably like no one here really knows you or likes you yet. So I'm going to throw all these secrets on you because no one would believe you. (laughs) (laughs) So part 3C, Jane returns to Gatehead. A day or so later, Jane receives news. Um, Her mean cousin died. That's the boy. A week ago. And her aunt, Mrs. Reed, is dying and has called for Jane. Jane tells Rochester she has to leave. And he seems very concerned that Jane will be so far away and urges her to return quickly. Jane says she will stay as long as she needs to. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, mind your business. I got some stuff to take care of. And when Jane returns to Gateshead, Mrs. Reed is still nasty to Jane, but tells her that a relative wrote looking for her about three years back saying he wanted to adopt Jane and leave his money to her. Mrs. Reed didn't send it to Jane because she didn't like Jane. And she didn't want to see Jane happy. Mm-hmm. She disliked her, period. In fact, she sent the letter to the uncle saying Jane died of typhus fever. <laughs> Jane dead. Move on. Jane told her aunt she forgave her and gave her aunt an opportunity to show remorse and be contrite. But the aunt was bitter to the end. No, I still don't she, like you, Jane. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like Jane, you when you was 10. I don't like you when you're 20. Yeah. And Jane is really only 18. Jane <laughs> said a bit to his sister cousin and... um. 
Yeah, Jay, the odd dies, of course. Um, Jay stays on a little bit to help the cousin. One of the cousins goes on to make an advantageous match with a wealthy, worn-out man. That's how he's described in the book. And the other goes to a convent. And so, the son know. is taking his own life already. He, like, yeah. lived a life of de- de- depravity and, yeah, ended up in, down and out and was begging for money because he was spoiled and terrible inside. Yeah, and that, that wasn't corrected early on. 3D, Jane returns to Thorfield. Turns out Jane is gone for like a month, and she's happy to return and see Mr. Rochester, even though she heard from Mrs. Fairfax that he will marry Blanche soon. Mr. Rochester tells Jane he will marry Blanche, and he has found a situation for her in Ireland. And Jane says, but that's too far. I mean, I want to be with you. Oh, yeah. That's I want to be with you. I mean, I mean, Ireland's far. It's too far for me. And she she says that involuntarily and immediately begins, you know, tears come out. Rochester tells Jane he's not marrying Blanche. Come to my side, Jane, and let us explain and understand one another. I will never again come to your side. I am torn away now and cannot return. But Jane, I summon you as my wife. It is you, only I intend to marry. I was silent. I thought he mocked me. Come, Jane, come hither. Your bride stands between us. He rose and with a stride reached me. My bride is here, he said, again drawing me to him. Because my equal is here and my likeness. Jane, will you marry me? Still I did not answer, and still I writhed myself from his grasp, for I was still incredulous. Do you doubt me, Jane? Entirely. You have no faith in me? Not a whit. Am I a liar in your eyes? He asked passionately. Little skeptic, you shall be convinced. What love have I for Miss Ingram? None and that you know. What love has she for me? None, as I have taken pains to prove. I caused a rumor to reach her that my fortune was not a third of what was supposed, and after that, I presented myself to see the result. It was coldness, both from her and her mother. I would not, I could not marry Miss Ingram. You, you strange, you almost unearthly thing. I love as my own flesh, you poor and obscure and small and plain as you are, I entreat to accept me as a husband. What, me? I ejaculated, beginning in his earnest and especially in his incivility to credit his sincerity. Me, who have not a friend in the world but you, if you are my friend, not a shilling, but what you have given me. You, Jane, I must have you for my own, entirely my own. Will you be mine? Say yes, quickly. Mr. Rochester, let me look at your face. Turn to the moonlight. Why? Because I want to read your countenance. Turn. There. You will find it scarcely more legible than a crumpled, scratched page. Read on. Only make haste, for I suffer. His face was very much agitated and very much flushed, and there were strong workings in the features and strange gleams in the eyes. Oh, Jane, you torture me! He exclaimed. With that searching and yet faithful and generous look, you torture me. How can I do that? If you are true and your offer real, my only feelings to you must be gratitude and devotion. They cannot torture. Gratitude? He ejaculated and added wildly, Jane, accept me quickly. Say, Edward, give me, give me my name. Edward, I will marry you. 
Are you in earnest? Do you truly love me? Do you sincerely wish me to be your wife? I do. And if an oath is necessary to satisfy you, I swear it. Then, sir, I will marry you. After the marriage proposal is accepted, Rochester and Jane are going back to the house and it's raining a bit. And as they arrive in the home, he helps Jane remove her shawl, calls her darling, kisses her repeatedly. And Mrs. Fairfax sees this. She's like, ah. What's going on in this house? That's improper. Yeah, the staff is like, mm, lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> Rochester didn't notice. Jane smiles and goes to the chamber and decides she'll explain to Mrs. Um, Fairfax later. A giant tree on the property was struck by lightning and split in two. The next morning, Mrs. Fairfax is acting funny. Jane tells Rochester, you, you got to tell Mrs. Fairfax that we're going to marry because, you know, she acted funny and I want to talk to her about it. I feel uncomfortable keeping that from her. She's been so kind to me. After he tells Mrs. Fairfax, she tells Jane, he's too old for you. <laughs> And that's not a really advantageous match. So I wouldn't advise it. And Fairfax Are you tells sure Jane. She's marrying you? <laughs> yeah. She's like, what, am I not me? deserving of being married to him? Oh, Fairfax. no, that's not what I meant. I had just meant, you know what? Never mind what I meant. Yeah. Yay! What did you mean? Fairfax tells Jane, well, keep your distance from him and distrust yourself as well as him. Gentlemen in his station are not accustomed to marrying their governesses. Jane is disappointed by Mrs. Fairfax's response. But they go on. They plan to marry in a month. Rochester wants to shower Jane with gifts and pretty things. And Jane just doesn't want it. She's not interested in that stuff. She wasn't, she um, doesn't want to feel like a doll that he's dressing up. And she also feels like, you know what? I need my own money. Mm -hmm. So she decides to reach out to that uncle. Remember that uncle? Mrs. Reed told her about, she reaches out. A couple nights before they're married, Jane has this crazy dream where she, um, in which someone tears her veil. And so the next day, Rochester sees something is bothering Jane and he pleads with her to tell him what's wrong. She finally tells him, look, I dreamed that this woman was in my room and she tore my veil. It was just really crazy. And I'm Jane not sure if I was, this was a spirit <laughs> or awake. Yes. Yeah. The woman was at her bedside, put a candle to her face and just kind of glared at her. And she thought it was Miss Grace Poole, but it didn't look like Grace. The next time she awoke, it was morning. So she thought she was dreaming. But when she saw the veil torn, she was troubled. Rochester told Jane it was half dream, half reality. The woman must have been Grace Poole. Sleep with uh, Adele tonight to be safe. You know, just sleep with the then, child to be safe. The child yeah, will and, protect you. And we'll be married in a year and a day. And at that time, I will tell you everything. Let's take a quick break. that you have about so her one. boring uh the first part of this book could have been taken out 
and just put into the conversation between um, we could have been edified on Jane's past through her conversations with the staff. Um, I felt like this was starting to be a book about one thing and then she goes off to be a governess and it becomes something else, a romance. Um, That's not very romantic. So he's ugly, she's ugly. And I can't stress enough, this is repeated throughout the story. Um, They're unattractive people. He's like, I think we should be married. And she's like, oh, I love you so much. And I'm like, but why though? What is this love based on? He's rude. It's based on engaging conversation. Oh, they do have a long period of dialogue. And that's when they fall in love with each other. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that makes sense then. And then when he um is dressing up as an uh, old woman, trying to trick people at his own house party, and he <laughs> asked Jane to come in, is he in love with Jane at this point? He is, yeah, right? And he, he wants is. to make sure that she feels the same before he tells her how he feels. Yeah, because of the... He kind of asked questions about that um, that being a match in this interview where he dressed up as a woman. So yeah, so at this point in the book, I felt like as soon as she meets um, Mr. Rochester, I'm all in. Actually, I thought the book did pick up all of a sudden, and this new book it was becoming was a lot more interesting than the first book it was about a orphan that goes to school and everyone starts dying. Um, it was really drab. What a downer. Uh, so what mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, but then she like gets some gumption and she goes and finds a job. And I like her inner thoughts. Like when he proposes to her and she's like, well, I need my own money. I love that. And I was very progressive for the time. And she's like, I'm not going to be dependent on you. I'm going to be dependent on my rich benefactor that died. <laughs> and I'm going to get his money eventually, probably. Yeah. So, she's yeah. like, yeah, I could get that money. So, yeah, let me just reach out to him and maybe he will leave me all of his dollars. Mm-hmm. I'm going to set that up. Yeah. What do you think about Mr. Rochester at this point? Um, I mean, he's what like I like. I don't I like him as much as I like Jane. I don't feel anything. Um, Nothing about him, uh, you know, is abhorrent to me yet. I did think he was rude, but he's that's explained in the fact that he's a hardened man who wasn't shown a lot of love and he softens on Jane. And then once he declares his love, they become very uh, compatible in their exchanges with each other. So, uh, yeah, I'm fine with him. What about you? Um. Yeah, I like uh, Rochester, even though um, he is, he's got, he's got that personality, that strong personality. He's, um, I think he genuinely cares for Jane at this point. He's, um, and though he's got lots of secrets and, um, and keeps telling Jane, don't talk about this. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know that that doesn't seem Don't talk fair. to this person. Don't talk about this. Don't ask questions about that. Yeah, and Jane kind of complies, but then also Jane is inexperienced in life. This is her mm-hmm. first situation out of being in a school with, I think, just girls' school. Mm-hmm. No, very little interaction with male other than that Mr. Brockerhurst, who was just a tyrant, mm-hmm. and then um, her cousin, who was a um, bully. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't have any male figures in her life, but she immediately responds to him. Um, she's she's engaged with him and she um, listens to him and, and kind of does what he says. But she's still her own woman, if you will. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think 
Mr. Rochester was cruel to Blanche. I know we only talked oh, about but Blanche. Blanche is briefly. like a social climber. I do feel like as soon as he knew, well, he's trying to keep his options open too. So no, it's just the way it is. Okay. <laughs> no. What about you? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think he was either. Because she like really showed herself. She's like rude and nasty from the jump. So mm-hmm. she's just trying to get what she can get. Exactly. Her and her family. So mm-hmm. you got it. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. So yeah, did you have any relationship? Yeah. Did you have any other thoughts that you wanted to share? No, let's get into part two. It gets really it speeds up into the plot after this. So so. So you're looking forward to us getting into yeah. part two. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. Are we going to close that well, out? Well, then see you guys <laughs> next week where we'll continue with part two. Adios. <laughs> so you're not going to close it out. Oh. Thank you. Thank God. you for the. What do we do? Hold <laughs> on. All right. Thank well, on that note, thank you for listening to Lit Society. We'll see you next Thursday when we're continuing Part two of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Sanaria and Kari Herrera. Please support the cause by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We, we love, love you, you too. too. Yeah. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and you have, tell a friend about Lit Society. <laughs> Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list. Visit LitSocietyPodShop.com for our amazing merchandise. And until next time, readers, read something. something.